Biblical Christianity is set apart from all other world religions, and that is not works-based. Christianity is not the only system of faith, but it's the only one that teaches that righteousness comes by faith alone. Salvation or reconciliation with God is not found by meritorious deeds or works righteousness. Rather, that the righteousness we need comes from Christ as a gift, and we access it by faith in him alone. However, it's amazing how quickly Christians can revert to a type of works righteousness, and many fall into the trap of legalism where they believe that their right standing with God is correlated to keeping the law and man's law at that. A type of cultural Christianity is alive and well in America. You see this, for example, in history in the Blue Laws of America. Have you ever heard of the Blue Laws? The Blue Laws were passed in America's history, and they banned certain activities on Sundays for religious reasons. It was Christians who made these laws and imposed them on the nation because they wanted to uphold Sunday as the Lord's Day, a new Sabbath, a day of rest, where these things shouldn't be done. Early on, the Puritans made laws prohibiting activities like cooking, shaving, and sweeping on Sundays. You could not cut your hair or wear jewelry either. Across the nation, businesses largely shut down on Sundays. Most of these laws didn't last long in America's history, but some did. In most states, the sale of alcohol was banned on Sundays. That's still a law in many places. Why is that? Well, on Sunday, you should be in church worshiping the Lord. At the very least, you shouldn't be drinking. Also, the sale of cars was prohibited on Sundays. This is still a law in 13 states. I guess car dealers were so associated with deceit, people figured they should only (laughs) lie to people six days a week, not seven days a week. And today, most of the blue laws have been repealed, but it goes to show you how even Christians can succumb to a type of legalism. These laws may have been well-intended, but they quickly became the barometer for one's righteousness, even though they didn't come from God. So take, for example, the, the banning of the sale of alcohol on Sundays. What did this law accomplish? Well, in our history, everyone who disregarded this law was viewed by society as unrighteous, even though... Bible doesn't say anything about this, and conversely, those who kept this law were seen as godly, righteous. In America especially, the standard for how good a person was was not whether they kept God's word, but how well they adhered to this man-made standard of righteousness. These laws did nothing to address man's sin problem or change the heart. All they did was drive up alcohol sales on Saturday night. But you can see how futile this is. Rules and regulations are not the answer to man's sin problem, but this is the allure of legalism. It's a bunch of unrighteous people, which which is all of us, creating a a bunch of rules that are keepable so that they can feel righteous or good or godly. This is how all religions work. It's just a shame shame when Christians do this because they should be different. The passage we have before us today speaks to this issue. Because we find a striking parallel between the cultural Christians and the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees, as the Jewish religious leaders, they should have known better. They're God's people, keepers of the law. But they had created their own set of blue laws, you might say, and it's it's all they cared about. They, too, heavily regulated righteousness, but way above and beyond what, what God actually said. Of course, the Pharisees made sure that all of their laws were attainable. I mean, you had to commit, but they were prepared to commit, so they kept their laws. The rest of the people didn't, 
and they were disregarded as, as unrighteous. You know, with the system so warped and wicked, it shouldn't surprise you to learn that Jesus confronted it just about every turn. Sometimes he exposed like the deep, fatal flaw between this and all world systems that no, no set of laws can make you righteous. The law can't save or make righteous. It's like Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.20. He tells the people, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement blew the people away, like more righteous than the Pharisees. Is that even possible? But that's the point. This is why Jesus concluded that section saying in Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. <clears throat> I mean, forget all these blue laws. You've got God's law to worry about. And you, you don't even come close. We, we like to lower the standard to some attainable level that we might feel righteous. But Jesus came reminding the people that not so fast. The bar is actually perfection. You have to be sinless before God. Perfect. That's still the bar. And only when you realize that, you understand that, well, none of us are perfect. You become desperate, desperate enough to go to Jesus as he's the one, <clears throat> the only one who can make you perfect and give you righteousness before God as a gift. Well, our text this morning is another one where Jesus doesn't let the hypocrisy <clears throat> of the Jewish legalistic system go unaddressed. It has to be called out that the people might be freed from their bondage to the law. It's found in Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. So you can take your Bibles, open there this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Several times we've been mentioning here in Matthew 11 and 12 uh, that, that these chapters record that the rising tide of opposition to Jesus, we've seen many ways so far how the religious leaders oppose Jesus but finally here in chapter 12, we see this, this lightning rod issue that invited the most scorn for Jesus. That would be his total disregard for their Sabbath laws. The Sabbath had become really the hallmark of the Jewish legalistic system, their religion. And we're not talking about like simple Sabbath observance as commanded by God. No, keeping the Sabbath had become to them like its own new religion. But Jesus had zero regard for this man-made system of works, righteousness. And he was not shy about just totally disregarding the rules of the Pharisees right in their faces. And he refused to play their game. And when they called him out, he often returned the favor and called them out, called out their hypocrisy. That's what we have in store today, Matthew 12, 1 through 8. Most of this passage consists of Jesus defending himself against the accusation of the Pharisees that he's lawless, that as if he is the lawless one. But in so doing, in defending himself, it actually gives an occasion for him to further testify, further lift the veil as to who he really is and the authority he really carries. There's a lot to see about Christ in this passage. We'll do that as we go. We're going to read as we go. I want to cover this whole section. It all starts in verses 1 through 2, which kind of set the scene. So let's just let's jump in and start there, starting in verses 1 through 2. See what's going on here. Matthew 12, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. <clears throat> in the text, we find ourselves on a random Sabbath afternoon, which for them was Saturday. 
Jesus and the disciples are walking through a grain field. It says it's ripe, ready for harvest. That means we're somewhere mid-April to mid-June. The, the ancient road trip was quite different from the modern-day road trip. Our family just completed a 1,900-mile road trip through the southwest in a car with AC on well-maintained roads. It's not the case for Jesus and the disciples on foot. No roads, just dirt trails, no AC. Mostly traveling on these dirt paths, not formal roads. They would just cut right through someone's field, like a cow trail or whatever it might be, putting you within arm's length of whatever happened to be growing. Now, on our road trip, we didn't have to worry about food. We were pretty sure that there would be restaurants, if you call fast food restaurants, at every place, every stop. You could buy food, but not back then. There were almost no restaurants. So if you're traveling some distance, you either had to bring enough provisions or rely on the hospitality of others or live off the land. And in this case, Jesus and the disciples are are doing the latter. They're walking through this field. They're grabbing a little something to eat. They walk past some grain, take the grain, crush it between their fingers, remove the husk and the chaff, and they eat the little kernel of wheat, the only edible part. Now, real quick side note, if you happen to have the old King James Version, you will find this passage being quite different because instead of grain fields, it reads corn fields. Have you ever heard of corn in the ancient Middle East? No. Western civilization didn't even know corn existed until the discovery of the New World. But the thing is, when the King James was written, the original, the English word corn meant grain. So if you have the King James, the meaning is technically the same. It's just that our word corn means something a little different than what it did in the 1600s. Another reason you probably shouldn't use the old King James Version anymore. Anyway, moving on, verse 2. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Have you ever read George Orwell's 1984? You've heard of the thought police. These were government agents. They were seemingly omnipresent, always tracking you to read your thoughts to see if even your thinking was with the party or not. The Pharisees, they're the religious thought police. They're the religious police. We don't know how, but they're somehow Jesus and his disciples, they're just walking through a field. But the Pharisees, they're tracking them. They see what's going on. They're following them. They're probably trying to catch them in a trap, as they often do. But they're present, and they see them breaking this religious law. Here, they're taking issue with the Sabbath observance of Jesus and his disciples, or the lack thereof. This, this really got under their skin. Like washing, fasting, that's one thing. But you, you don't mess with the Sabbath. Sabbath regulations, again, they sat at the very heart of the Jewish legalistic system that had evolved over the years. Observing the Sabbath in general, like that's a biblical practice. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. God set aside the Sabbath, which we call Saturday, really Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. as a day of rest, a cessation from labor, rest. No one is to work, not you, your children, your oxen, just a day of rest. Back then, there was no such thing as a weekend. Everyone worked seven days a week. So a Sabbath rest was unique to the Jews, one of the most unique practices the Jews had, and and a blessing in a day, in a world without weekends, sounds like a blessing. But over time, this very simple command became very complicated. The scribes and Pharisees 
took it upon themselves to go way beyond what the Old Testament defined as work. Whereas God left people generally in liberty, they, they put people in chains as they became lords of the Sabbath, the lawgivers, you might say. God's command was really, in general, quite simple. Don't work, rest, remember the Sabbath. But to build a fence around this command, the Jews added 39 categories of prohibited works on the Sabbath, each with a long list of very specific applications. The list of regulations was endless, none of them actually coming from the Old Testament. It was said that the rules for the Sabbath are like mountains hanging by a hair. For scripture is scanty and the rules many. The Sabbath was meant to be just a holy day of rest, given by God as a blessing to the people. But the Pharisees, they had turned this day into an unbearable burden. I do not imagine the Jews in this day looked forward to the Sabbath anymore. They made these people walk this tight rope, frantically worrying about not violating some random law. You get the impression that they made this one day of rest harder than the six days of labor that had preceded it. I'll just give you some examples of what counted as work to them and therefore was a violation of the Sabbath command. Just to get a sense of like how crazy this is. On Sabbath, cooking was not allowed, nor baking, nor frying, nor any other method of applying heat to cook food. You can make a salad because you're not changing the vegetables, but you can't cut or cook the vegetables. Both tying and untying counted as work. So if your sandal laces became untied on Sabbath, you have to wait till sundown. You cannot retie them. One category of Sabbath violation was labeled sorting and purification. So in this category, filtering undrinkable water or just picking the bones out of a fish that's work. That's your, you're purifying, you're sorting. And here's a crazy but real example. Let's say you've got like a bowl of peanuts mixed with raisins, like the ancient trail mix, and you only want the raisins to remove the peanuts from the bowl, leaving behind only the desired raisins. That's an act of purification. That's work. You can't do that. But if you just pick the raisins one by one, leaving behind the undesired peanuts, that's fine. You can do that. That's not purification doesn't count as work. Also, you can't start a fire on the Sabbath. You can't extinguish a fire on the Sabbath. If a fire occurs, even at the risk of property damage, you have to let it be. The only exception was the risk of human life. But look, this list goes on and on. There are hundreds of these little laws. So it is this collection of man-made laws the Pharisees had in mind when they saw Christ's disciples taking grain on the Sabbath. To them, the actions of the disciples violated several laws. Now, years later, the Jewish Talmud came around. It's what codified all these laws. They wrote them down. In the days of Christ, this was an oral tradition. But it gives a sense of it. Later, the Talmud said this, quote, If a person rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is sifting. If he rubs the heads of wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side adherences, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding. If he, throws up, if, if he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing, end quote. And all those categories, threshing, grinding, winnowing, those were all forbidden categories of work on the Sabbath. Now, of course, this is exactly what Jesus and his disciples were doing in small scale, and they were, they were doing, they're violating many commands, according to the Pharisees.
Now, of course, they weren't guilty of violating anything that God's word actually said. Jesus and his disciples weren't doing anything wrong in God's eyes. In fact, back in Deuteronomy 23, God's word allowed, endorsed people to glean wheat or food when walking through a field. You could glean from the edge of your neighbor's field. That was, that's in the law as a positive. But they had come under the guilt and condemnation of the Pharisees as if they were unrighteous and unlawful. Even Christ. Christ being unlawful. And in this case, he won't let that accusation slide. And so in the remaining verses, really the the rest of the passage, we get Christ's response. This response is part offense, part defense. He partly goes on the offense, calling out their hypocrisy, their mishandling of the law overall, while at the same time defending himself, vindicating himself as always lawful, always pleasing to God. But more than lawful, Jesus here reveals he's he's actually the law giver. This provides an occasion for Jesus to further testify as to who he really is. Namely, he adds, and we learn here, Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath, which to the Jews especially, that's, that's a pretty big title. It's a pretty big deal, something we'll see. So the rest of our time now, let's, let's look at Christ's response specifically. We find verses 3 through 8, his fourfold rebuttal to the accusation of the Pharisees. This fourfold rebuttal to the accusation of the Pharisees. Just so that we may learn what Jesus says about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath says about Jesus. Fourfold rebuttal to the accusation of the Pharisees. Starts with number one, verses three and four, the, the example of David. He goes to the example of David. Look at verse three. It says, Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So his first response, he's appealing to a scene from the Old Testament. This is a passage the Pharisees should have known. And so when Jesus says, have you not read, that was meant to be a stinging, sarcastic criticism. Like, of course they have read this. They, they're the experts in the law, in the Old Testament, But of course, they missed all the significance to what they knew. This takes us back to the time of David in 1 Samuel 21. Saul was acting king, but he was no longer recognized. The Lord had anointed David as his king by this point. But in the moment, Saul wasn't happy about this. He was seeking David's life. David and his few men were fleeing, running from Saul. And they show up in the city of Nob, city of priests, which was actually located only a few miles from what would later become Jerusalem. And at the time, there was no temple. They had that portable tabernacle. And Nob was where the tabernacle was set up. So David and his men, they're fleeing. They have no supplies on hand, no provisions, not even a sword. They've got nothing. They need help. And mostly they need food because they're starting to starve. But they find in the city that the only food available in this village was the consecrated bread in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was this golden table. And on the table, there were 12 loaves of unleavened bread. It's called the bread of the presence. And it symbolized God's presence with his people. 12 loaves sitting in for the 12 tribes 
of Israel. And they were pictured as like guests at God's table in constant fellowship with God in his tabernacle. On every Sabbath, the old bread was eaten by the priests and replaced with new bread. Now, the law stated that this bread was not for everyone. This bread was only for the consecrated priests. So David shows up with his men. They're starving. They're in great need. The only bread around, they're, they're not supposed to eat. Now, Ahimelech was priest during that time, and he recognized <clears throat> the need of the moment. He's got David before him, and he realizes that the need to preserve life outweighs the need to preserve a ceremony. David and the priest both understand what, what use is it to keep a ritual alive and not keep people alive. What is more important, the life of a tradition or the life of a person? The answer is always the same, people, that life matters more than symbols. There are many biblical symbols and rituals, but they should not take precedence over human life. And hopefully you can see why Jesus brings this up. That his first response is less about how the Pharisees viewed the Sabbath, more about how they viewed God's word overall, the law overall. It's an argument from lesser to greater. If, if David was allowed by a priest to violate God's law in order to preserve life, and this was a real law, Leviticus 24.9, that consecrated bread was only for the consecrated priests. But 1 Samuel 21 heaps no condemnation on David, his men, or the priests for this exception. Well, now one greater than David has come, and his men are hungry. So here's Christ's point. If, if David and his men had the right to set aside a divinely ordained ceremonial provision when necessity demanded it, then certainly the Lord's anointed, the greater David, the Messiah, had the right along with his men, to set aside unwarranted, man-made ceremonial traditions. Like, all the more so. The Pharisees clung to their little laws with the rigidity that not even David would have recognized. Their whole approach to the law is just founded on quicksand. Jesus revealing here the example, the precedence of David, you might say. He and his disciples, his men, they're hungry. They stand on solid ground. Now for the second rebuttal, verses 5 and 6, the exception of the law. The example of David, second, the exception of the law. He has a second response, verse 5. He says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, again, the way Jesus phrases this rebuttal would have stung the Pharisees. Like, have you not read in the law? They're the self-professed experts in the law. Like, of course they've read this. But why don't you understand what it says? Namely, that the exception the law itself gives to its commands. He says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent. And we're like, wait, is that actually true? Does the law actually say that? Yes, it does. The Sabbath was given as a day of rest. It says for all the people, a day in which they should do no labor at all. They were to rest and remember the Lord. But as with seemingly every law, there are exceptions, right? Do not most laws carry exceptions? Most laws 
biblical and otherwise. They, they give very basic definitions of right and wrong behavior. But look, in real life, there are countless circumstances of real life that requires detail and nuance. In fact, you could argue that of the 613 commands found in the Torah, that most, if not all of them, were given just to further explain the 10 very basic commandments. They, they further flesh out the 10 commandments. God gives in his law, like all this case law, it's really just showing how these 10 very basic commandments are to be carried out with their limitations and their exceptions. Now here, Jesus points out one divinely ordained exception to the command, God's command, to not labor but to rest on the Sabbath. This, this exception comes from God himself. And that would have to do with the priests serving in the temple. You recall for the Jews, for them to remember and worship God on the Sabbath, something they were to do, that, that involves, for them, sacrifice. And that, in turn, necessitated that the priests do quite a bit of labor. Like, by no means did the priests rest on the Sabbath. This was their busiest day of the week, and that the sacrificial system went into overdrive on the Sabbath. Numbers 28 indicates that the priests had to offer double the daily sacrifice on the Sabbath. What does this look like? They're gathering wood. They're starting a fire under the altar. They're slaughtering the animal. They're hoisting it on the altar. Afterwards, they're butchering all the meat, because remember, the meat fed the Levites. I've not fully butchered an animal. I've seen it, and no one would confuse it with restful activity. It's like a lot of work. The point is, the priests did a lot of work on the Sabbath. All of these activities, by the way, were deemed as violations of Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. But even the Pharisees did not take issue with the priests serving at the temple. Even they recognized the legitimate exception the priests had because of their temple service. The priests were viewed as innocent. They were not thought to be in violation of the Sabbath command. They had an established exception as they served a higher command, that they were working to facilitate the worship of God in temple service. So what's greater, keeping the Sabbath or temple worship? The Old Testament indicated temple worship. So the priests were without guilt because the same law that they were under granted their exception. And even the Pharisees recognized this. But now you can see the point Jesus is making. Where even in the Old Testament, concerning the real Sabbath command, there were exceptions. So should not these, these man-made, artificial Sabbath commands come with exceptions? Should not the arbitrary, made-up Sabbath rules of the Pharisees be all the more quickly set aside when legitimate needs arise? Yes, so they should. Of course, in reality, the Pharisees, they held to God's law loosely, but their law very strictly. Because in reality, they weren't serving God, they were serving self. Like, you can take exception with God's law. You better not take exception with our law. That's how they operated. Now look, though, taking a step further, Jesus is actually continuing his argument from lesser to greater. He says the priests in the temple were innocent of breaking the Sabbath, really because they were serving something greater, which was what? The temple, which was the house of God, that the presence, the dwelling of God, but look what Jesus adds in verse 6. Not a small statement. But I say to you, that something greater than the temple is here. Not just greater than the priests, greater than the temple itself. 
Like if service to the temple, standing in place of God's presence, merited an exception to the Sabbath command, should not service to something greater than the temple merit an exception to man-made Sabbath commands? Again, yes, it's, it's all pretty obvious. Now, the thing is, to the Jews, the only thing greater than the temple was God himself. And this just goes to further show that their real problem, the real problem the scribes and Pharisees have is they're failing to recognize Jesus for who he really is. If only they saw that, indeed, he is greater than the temple because he is the greater temple, the greater dwelling place of God. God dwelt in the temple only partially and provisionally, but Jesus was God incarnate. He's the real and full dwelling place of God and his spirit. You recall elsewhere, Jesus compared his body to the temple, which would be destroyed but raised up in three days. Even there, they failed to understand what he was talking about. They didn't see him for who he was. Still, though, here Jesus and his disciples are shielded from guilt. If the Sabbath command of God carried exception for the priests because they served the temple, well, then the Sabbath commands of the Pharisees, they have to carry far greater exceptions for the disciples because they're serving the greater temple, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, on to the third rebuttal, a couple more to go. Verse 7, he gives the expectation of God. His third response, the expectation of God. What is is God even getting at with the Sabbath command, his expectations? Verse 7, he says, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. Now, remember how this whole thing started. Back in verse 2, the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of Jesus of being unlawful for eating grain on the Sabbath. Really, that's an affront on their master, the rabbi. It reflects on Jesus. He's the unlawful one. But in these rebuttals, Jesus is attesting like he's not lawless. He is never in violation of God's law. He came to fulfill it. What is the law but a reflection of that which is pleasing to God? The law was God's will for Israel that they might honor him and please him as they serve him, as their maker and savior. Well, Jesus was always pleasing to the Father, both in how he fulfilled the letter and the spirit of the law. He came to do the will of the Father, and that includes honoring the desire of God's heart behind all of his laws. Elsewhere, Jesus would just declare the heart of God in his law by identifying the two greatest commands, which summed up the whole thing. This is the heart of God in all the law. It's summed up by the two commands. You know them, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. These summarize the Ten Commandments and all the others. God gave these laws as a blessing, not a burden. They were meant to bring glory to his name and good to your neighbor. But the Pharisees missed all that. They, re- they reduced the law to a mere set of these heartless commands. Next week and, and beyond, we'll see just how heartless their Sabbath restrictions were as they again take issue with Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. I mean, do you really think that's what God had in mind when he said, don't work on the Sabbath? And if you can heal someone, definitely don't do that. Is that really the heart of God and his law? But here, though, Jesus still takes issue with their heartless understanding of God's will. 
and thought, look, for the sake of their rules and traditions, they paid no attention to the genuine need, the hunger of Christ's disciples. In this episode, we get the impression that the disciples of Jesus, they, they weren't just needlessly snacking, gleaning this wheat, that they were like David's men. They were famished, long journey, probably been without food for some time. The Pharisees don't care about the disciples. They don't care about these people at all. And these were fellow Israelites suffering the pains of hunger. They're in need of sustenance, and all they're doing is gleaning, which was allowed by God's law. The Pharisees pay no attention to any of that. They don't see these people. They just see their laws being violated. Let them starve. You don't take exception to our laws. But again, clearly they were, they're missing the heart of God and the expectation of God in his word, which was what? Here, Jesus doesn't go to the two greatest commands. He goes to another well-worn passage, Hosea 6, verse 6, where God says to the people, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You may remember Jesus, he already quoted this passage to the Pharisees back in Matthew 9, 13. And here he does it again. It's like, well, you don't know this by now? I've told you this before. It is not that the sacrificial system did not matter. It did. God commanded it. They were to keep it. But it was never the intention of God's laws that ceremonial matters would take precedence over moral matters, or that rituals would be more important than people. Jesus later condemns the Pharisees for missing this point. You can listen to Matthew 23, verse 23, where he pronounces woe on them. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He says, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Turns out, the Pharisees, even though they were as religious as a person could be, even with all that religion, they didn't know God. They were so far from his heart, his will, his nature. They're so focused on the justice of God that they missed his mercy and his compassion. And accordingly, they were not gracious men. They were judgmental, self-righteous, condemning. Legalism always breeds this type of person, a man of law, not a man of grace. You want to steer far clear from people who are men of law or people of law, not people of grace. This is what led them to condemn the innocent, the disciples, even the Lord himself they're condemning, being blinded to God's heart of compassion. They've missed the expectation of God. Now, speaking of Jesus as Lord, he's going to finish off his defense with a bang. Number four, fourth rebuttal. The exaltation of Jesus. The exaltation of Jesus. He ends verse 8. He says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Using his favorite title for himself. Son of Man. Now going back to the example of David. Technically when David took that bread, he was king. Like Saul was still alive, but he was God's anointed. He was recognized as king in God's eyes. And so you could very well say that, look, as king, the anointed king, he had a a special authority to take that bread. Well, here Jesus shows that all the more so, he's got a special authority. He's king of kings. He's the lawgiver. Like, how can any man impose petty, made-up restrictions of the Sabbath on him? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, surely this is 
none other than a claim of deity, especially to Jews, Matthew's primary audience, the Lord of the Sabbath. This text doesn't say that the Jews picked up stones to throw at him, but where he's claiming that he's greater than the temple and he's Lord of the Sabbath, I mean, that that would merit that response. Jesus never cast God's law aside. He came to fulfill it, not violate it. But he is the one with the authority to determine, to tell you what is lawful on the Sabbath, what is not. He, being God, created the Sabbath. It, It is his day. So this clash in reality is not over the rules of the Sabbath, but over who rules the Sabbath. To finish his defense, he asserts his divine authority that he is the one with lordship over the Sabbath and its proper observance. Just imagine this. One day your kid comes home from school and they've picked up a dirty habit, spitting. And they even start spitting inside the house. You'd be outraged. You'd call them like, how do you think this is okay? And they say back, well, my friend does it. And he says his parents don't care. Would that be good enough for you? Would that fly with you? No, not in your house. This is your house. This is your castle, your rules. I don't care what any other parents say, if that's even true. But it doesn't matter what others say at this moment. You're in my house, my rules. Well, likewise, Jesus is Lord. He's king over all the castles. That his authority extends over all the earth. We live in his world. And he does not really care what the Pharisees say, their made-up rules, or any of man's religions, for that matter that his word goes. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Pharisees were playing Lord, but they're not. And they have no right to Lord over him. With this closing argument, Jesus rests his case that before God to us, he has thoroughly defended himself. To them, their eyes are still blinded. They don't take anything he has to say. They, they will continue from here on out, continue to try and trap him in ways, showing he's lawless, showing he breaks the law. They'll find other angles to accuse him. We'll see that even next week. For now, though, we'll finish here. We're left wondering, what's what's the purpose of this text? What what are we meant to learn from this little, almost random episode in Matthew? And I believe the primary purpose of this passage is to give us yet another testimony of who Jesus really is. Matthew has been doing this throughout his gospel, and we can add another title to the list of who Jesus is. He's Lord of the Sabbath. And again, to his primary audience of Jews, that's, that's a huge title. There's no more important distinctive to the Jews than Sabbath. But Christ is, is the Lord, the master of that. To Jews, this is akin to deity. It shows Jesus possesses all authority and lordship over all things. The consequence of this is that you should probably listen to him. You should listen to this Lord. You should do what he says. Unlike the Pharisees, you reading this should recognize Jesus for who he is, Lord, and you should submit to him as master. You may think that sounds a little harsh. I don't want a Lord or master over my life ruling me. But don't so quickly forget that this Lord came down to earth to give us true rest. He came not as a cruel or harsh taskmaster to make our lives miserable, but as a gentle, gracious, compassionate Savior to lift us from our greatest burden, just sin. The rest Jesus offers is not found in his law, but in his grace. 
And along these lines, I believe Matthew is, is setting up here an intentional contrast. We've learned Matthew arranges his material in his gospel much more chrono- or thematically than chronologically. And so with that in mind, you know, forget chapter divisions, just the passage right before this, chapter 11, 28 through 30, you see a significant contrast here. And I'll, I'll explain this. The Pharisees, with their system of works, righteousness, they were all law, no grace, all burden, no blessing. I mean, life, life was burdensome enough. They added this burden of religion, this crushing the people under guilt and anxiety. Later, Jesus will say of them, Matthew 23, verse 4, that they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The key word here is burden. Their law was a burden. Their system was a burden. Certainly their Sabbath restrictions were a burden. You remember elsewhere Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Recall, like, what, what was God's intended purpose for this seemingly strange Sabbath command? It was meant to be a blessing, a time of rest. It was meant, in part, to keep the people from wearing out, wearing out their bodies, wearing out their animals, wearing out their fields. If you've ever worked hard physically, you understand the blessing of just rest. Also, the Sabbath was meant to be a golden opportunity for the people to lift their thoughts to higher things. Again, if you've ever labored hard, it it takes it out of you. You finish the day, you just want to sleep, want to veg out. Back then, life was even more rigorous. Every day was filled with hard work. You, you really have that mental energy to think, to ponder, to lift your thoughts heavenward. But if you had an entire day just set aside for forcible rest, just think what that would do for a person mentally as well, giving them a chance to think about God, remember God, lift their thoughts. They don't have to worry about laboring in the field that day. Trust God, but rest, pause, remember your maker. And again, in a world where everybody worked seven days a week, this rest was a real blessing. But the Pharisees changed the Sabbath from a blessing to a burden, a day of fear. You can't do this. You can't do that. You were just constantly worried you might break some minutia of their law. And if you did, you would be held as guilty as if you had broken God's law. The religious police were always watching. And if they caught you, you would be condemned and ostracized as a sinner. You see, they made man a slave of the Sabbath. They were the self-professed lords of the Sabbath, but they were wicked taskmasters, men of law, not of grace. But you see, against this backdrop, in comes Jesus. He's the real Lord of the Sabbath. And again, let's remember why he came. Look at the, look at the passage right before, 11, 28 through 30 from last time. It's where Jesus famously says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you see the contrast in Jesus? He's come to offer grace to those held in bondage under the law. God's law was good, but we're not. We're all guilty. 
I mean, like, you can add all the blue laws or pharisaical laws all you want, but they don't make you more righteous, and they're not going to keep you from sin. We have corrupt hearts given over to evil, that now, after the fall, we, we by nature, don't love God or his ways. We want our will be done, not, not his will be done. This leads to a whole host of sin and the condemnation it brings, but this is why Jesus came. He came to give us new hearts that we might love God and love his law. It's no hardship to keep it. I want to do that. And he came to pay for our sins that he might offer us forgiveness. This Lord of the Sabbath, the great high priest, also came as the Lamb of God who was slain to take away our sins. And now those who heed this call, who come to him, find rest in the truest sense of the word. They really, they find the rest that the Sabbath pointed to which was not just rest from labor one day a week, like a one day a week vacation, but it pointed to something more, rest from from striving, from sin, from guilt, from shame, from condemnation, from God's judgment. Rest for your souls, just the freedom to worship and enjoy God once again. You know, this explains why the Sabbath command from the law of Moses is not once repeated or exemplified in the New Testament for Christians in the church. Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, and accordingly that the New Testament no longer requires Sabbath observance. You have liberty to honor one day above others, or no day at all. Colossians 2, 16, 17 says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The shadow form of the Sabbath command was fulfilled. This means that while the first Christians, they found Sunday, the day of the resurrection, to be a very fitting day for corporate worship, and we still do that, the New Testament never teaches that Sunday was transformed into like the new Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. No, where you have to cease all work in order to worship That's not the case. The reality is, in the New Covenant, every single day is meant to be a day of worship and remembrance of God. We worship Him every day. Now, there still is a Sabbath rest for God's people, but we look forward not to the shadow, but the substance, which is found in Christ and what He brings. This is why Hebrews 4.9 says that there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. As Hebrews 4 says, Jesus, this great high priest, passed through the heavens. He sat down at the throne of law. No, the throne of grace. He's sitting at the throne of grace, and our rest is there with him. We're looking for and longing for this eternal heavenly rest from all our striving that we might enjoy God. But the marvel is that by faith in Christ right now, we we get to enjoy this rest now. We, We enter this rest now. We find true peace for our souls and confidence and assurance in Christ now. If you're in Christ, if you could say that that the Lord of the Sabbath is my Lord, he enables you to say, it is well with my soul. No matter what happens here below, your rest with him is secure. And so as Hebrews 4.11 says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. And you enter one way only, not by law, but by grace through faith in him alone, by going to him with all your burdens. Jesus is the greater David, 
the greater temple, and the greater Sabbath, and he has come. He's the ultimate answer to all of your problems, whatever they might be, one way or another, he answers all of man's and life's problems. Your sufficiency, your standing before God. It's not based on your performance, your law-keeping, your being good enough, but his performance, his law-keeping, his being good enough, and he is good enough. You need to learn to live in dependence on this Jesus. Look, not just on day one of your salvation and not just one day a week. Every single day, every hour, we need him. Let's call upon him and find that the, uh, the freedom and the rest he promises for all who heed his call to come to him. Let's go to him always. Let's do that in prayer to the throne of grace right now. Our precious Father in heaven, we do call upon you even now, asking you to hear us as we, we promised you will. We call upon you through Christ our Savior, by the Spirit. We just first want to exalt you and, and praise you as you remember through your word what you have done for us through Christ, the God-man, the Lord of the Sabbath. We remember how he's come to, to answer our problems, above all, a problem of sin and death, suffering. And dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he, he paved the way and finished the work for us to enter by his merit, by his righteousness alone. Your law is good. We still love under, live under the law of Christ. You've transformed us to love it, but we know our standing before you, our hope is just in Christ. And the greater David, the greater temple, the greater Sabbath, our rest is in him. Convict us of this. May we not fall into the traps and pitfalls that are still all around us of a type of legalism. May we just look to Christ alone for all as we live obediently and joyously now in Christ. A very busy rest indeed. We're happy to do so. We thank you for your word and the hope it brings us. May we always give honor and recognition to Christ, our Lord, Lord of the Sabbath. In his name we pray. Amen.